The Imposter Club is produced by talented people, staffing and headhunting company in TV production, with a mission to make the industry a happier, more creatively diverse place. Coming up... Always apply for jobs that you want, even if you feel that you don't have the qualifications, because did that hold back Boris Johnson when he applied to be Prime Minister of this country? Clearly not. This is The Imposter Club, the podcast uniting all us TV, film and content folk secretly stressing that everyone else has it sorted except us. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, TV director turned staffing company founder, and each episode I want you to hear the real story of a successful industry figure, not the glossy announcements we usually see, but the truth of their career journey, including the bumpy bits, to help you make sense of your own. Health warning, this podcast may incur whiplash from violent nodding, plus an unfamiliar but hopefully welcome feeling of belonging. It is an honour to be introducing you to today's guest on The Imposter Club, someone who has admitted publicly, in the course of my work, I've thought I'd die a few times, I've been temporarily kidnapped, condemned as a terrorist whore, told by my own colleagues I should be in prison for several years, and hardest of all, been a single parent. Dorothy Byrne, the woman, the legend, is now president of Murray Edwards College for Women at Cambridge University, but in TV terms, is most recently editor-at-large at Channel 4, having been the head of news and current affairs there for many years and editor of dispatches before that. Dorothy worked her way up over decades to become one of the nation's most senior figures in current affairs journalism, often causing headlines with her no-nonsense opinions. And actually, I was in the audience of her very much whoop-inducing McTaggart lecture at Edinburgh TV Festival in 2019, calling out Boris Johnson as a liar. Doesn't seem like news now, does it? And sharing personal experiences of sexual harassment and workplace prejudice with her trademark directness and wit. I remember telling my partner afterwards, she's such a hero for speaking out so fearlessly. So... Dorothy, huge thanks for joining us at the Imposter Club. And firstly, talking of fearlessness, I can't imagine you have ever felt like an imposter, but is that too presumptuous? Well, I think when I was younger, I um, definitely felt I lacked confidence. And when I look back now, men at the same level as me would apply for promotions that I thought I couldn't possibly apply for. And I, I'm really horrified to think of that young person. Sure. But today, I definitely do not suffer from imposter syndrome. And no offence meant to the name of your podcast, which I think <laughs> is a well-meaning name. Uh, I think we shouldn't say... Oh, all women suffer from imposter syndrome because there's a risk that that can actually accidentally put women down. I do not feel I'm an imposter. I've been a journalist for 47 years. I've been a television journalist for 41 years. And I am the real deal. I know what I'm doing. I'm not an imposter. 
However, I know a lot of men who are imposters and they should feel that they have imposter syndrome because they are imposters. They make out that they can do things they can't. And in that category, I would put nearly all the men running the country. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of people who would kill to have your confidence right now in their career. How did you get to the boldness and the fearlessness that you have today? Where did you start out? Where's that story begin for you? Well, uh, strangely enough, I would say that the nuns at my school had an effect on me. They decided that I should be a Labour MP. I, I didn't have any desire to be a Labour MP at all, but they said um, that in order to do that, I needed to win the National Schools Debating Competition, which was then and still is nearly always won by leading private schools. Right. So they brought in a man from a nearby school because they thought they couldn't do it to teach me how to be self-confident when battling with other men. And he made me stand on a big Victorian table and alone in a room, this would never happen now, and he threw a subject at me and I just had to speak about it. And as I started to speak, he started yelling at me from below. And because I was standing on a table, that makes you feel lacking in confidence. Mm -hmm. F off, you stupid little bitch. Just F off, F off. And I went, oh, oh, oh. And he said, don't stop, don't stop. You have to keep going. It doesn't matter what anybody says or does, you keep going. And and I did win the National Schools Debating Competition. And many years after that, when I first became the editor of a programme, a man said to me, who worked for me, why don't you F off, you stupid little bitch, F off. And I said to him, I was trained by nuns to deal with men like you. So what I do is I just, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do, I just carry on. Um, so I, I, I think people believing in you when you're young is very important. But I should say that my father really believed in me. So I think it's, I'm not talking about just women believing in you. Mm -hmm. it, it's important to have people who believe in you. And I believe that early on in their career, what's a very good thing for young women to do is I urge my students um, always ask for a pay rise because that makes people think well of you. Um, also, always apply for jobs that you want, even if you feel that you don't have the qualifications, because did that hold back Boris Johnson when he applied to be prime minister of this country? Clearly not. Nope. Take a tip from his book. 
And then the final thing I think for young people is that it's a very good idea to go to somebody and say, I really admire you, maybe somebody a bit more senior in the company. I wonder if you might be interested in just giving me a little bit of informal mentoring. And my experience is that when you ask people that, they almost always say yes, because they're flattered and they think, oh, I can do something useful here. And then they will inevitably become your champion. And often people think that they should be writing to the chief executive of the company. But I think it's somebody who's just a bit further up. I agree. And someone who's got... um more of a hunger to do that and probably a little bit more time in their diary than a CEO who is also slightly more removed from the coalface. I think that's, that's a really good idea and that they really get something out of it as well. Yes, I, I think when I've mentored people, I've got as much out of it as they have and it also enables you to think a bit about, oh, how did I achieve that? So you were, what, mid-twenties when you got your first job in TV. How did that come about? Well, I actually worked in local papers and I didn't apply to work in TV till I was 30. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Why didn't I? I? I had a very good degree. I had done lots of interesting things. I'd won the national debating competition and yet um, I didn't start applying till my late, very late 20s. And the difference then was I answered an advert in The Guardian. And now there aren't adverts in The Guardian for full-time staff jobs in television. At the time, at the time I took the job at Granada TV on their, starting on their local news, and then I went on to World in Action, um, I was offered a job as an on-screen reporter oh, right. for an LWT programme in London, but I took the Granada job partly because I really liked Granada and World in Action, but also because it was a staff job. So I don't think I made the wrong decision, but it was partly based on the fact that I wasn't rich enough, I felt, to be able to risk doing a six-month contract and then not having a job at the end of it. And now I think that that is a real problem in television. If you're not well off with parents living in London and you get offered a contract to do three months in TV, that's a great opportunity. But if you're not well off and you come from Lancashire, as which is where I was living, you might feel, oh, I can't take that job. Completely. It's a, almost a totally freelance industry now, and it is, it has a huge impact on the people who are just simply able to consider a career in TV because how are you going to afford 
a, you know, a flat, uh, a bed anywhere in London if you're bumping from a one-week job to a one-month job with a three-week gap in the middle. Like, you just aren't going to be able to pay your rent. Do you remember um, the first place that you lived in London when you were trying to get into print journalism? Yes, it was terrible. I lived in a one room in a family's house. That's all I could afford. And every night I washed my nylons, which is what we wore then, and I dried them by squeezing them in a towel and put them on the next day, which did have the unfortunate effect that they got longer and longer. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was very hard. And in my first job on a paper on the Waltham Forest Guardian, I also lived at first in one room in a family house and that wasn't very nice. And I would have these moments of thinking, gosh, is this how I'll ever live? I mean, it's, it's very hard for anyone in their 20s, even if, you know, they have some level of support in London or, at, or Manchester or whatever city you're in trying to find work, but especially hard for those who don't have links. Do you remember what your parents thought of you wanting to come to London and carve out a career in the media? Oh, my mother was absolutely appalled that I should go and work on a local paper because, bear in mind, you can go and work on a local paper if you've left school at 16. And I can remember, I have three sisters, being with her when she met a friend and she said to the friend that one of her daughters was now a doctor. Uh, one was married to a university lecturer and one was married to the deputy head of the foreign service in Australia. And then that was it. It stopped, so it was like she only had three children and it's because she couldn't bear to say to this woman, and Dorothy works on the Walthamstow Guardian. <laughs> My father got it better because he said, oh, this is really interesting and you learn court mm -hmm. reporting and you're covering crimes and, and this is you forging your career. So when I became head of news and current affairs and my mother was very excited because mm -hmm. now she could tell everybody, I, in my head, I refused to take her compliments because I thought you didn't compliment me when I was finding my way in life. So you have no right to compliment me now. But my father, I said thank you very much to him for his compliments. Don't go anywhere. I really suffered in the menopause. It was awful. I woke up every hour or two. I mean, I was constantly exhausted. And as a result of that, I commissioned a film about the menopause and I would never have done that. And actually, the programme rated so well that they almost immediately commissioned a second one. OK, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. 
Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying, blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month and with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. This is The Imposter Club, and I'm talking to Dorothy Byrne. That is really interesting, actually, and a question that we get a lot at my company um you know we're we're trying to help people into the right jobs for them is you know but if I have that on my CV is that going to undo the good stuff you know oh but I need to pay the mortgage or I need to pay the rent what if I take this rubbish job but it's only freelance it's only for three months what shall I do and you've kind of answered it there in that everything is a stepping stone to something else and of course we all have the long-term strategy that we'd ideally like And we would like that job there probably in five years time. But those increments of how you get there, I mean, personally, I I think that you learn so much from doing the stuff that you are, I don't know, not not as keen on as you do the ones that you throw your heart and soul in because you love it. Because actually you have to find your way, don't you? You still have to deliver. If you're a proud person, you want to deliver, you're going to make it work. So, I mean, from what you've said, you know, you would probably advocate that. Well, I look at people's CVs and I admire them if I see that they, say, worked their way through university and maybe worked in a shop every weekend. I I like to see on CVs for journalists also that they've lived in the real world. I mean, I'll tell you a woman I admire massively Mm -hmm. is the new professor of astrophysics at Cambridge University, Herania Mm -hmm. Perez, who doesn't come from a well-off family. When she was young, she won a place at Cambridge University, actually at Murray Edwards College, but she couldn't afford to take it for two years because she had to go and work for two years to earn money in order to be able to do her degree. So, you know, I admire her because she's a brilliant astrophysicist, but I admire her for that. 
And again and again, if you look in the story of people you admire, you you will see some suffering and struggle that they have yeah. overcome. And one thing that I would say to people who are giving advice to young people on talking about their careers, and I, I think many people know this anyway, is don't just tell them about I was brilliant at school, then I was brilliant at university, then I was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, talk about things that went wrong in your life because mm -hmm. for many people, it's what they learn from what went wrong in their lives that helped to make them the people that they are. I had a terrible accident and couldn't walk for a year and was told I might never walk again and that has really informed my journalism throughout my life. It has given me an understanding of what it's like to be a helpless patient in a not very good hospital that isn't treating you well. So I have made a lot of films about the NHS. It's taught me about the effect that disability has on people, how disability, even if it's an invisible disability, can destroy self-confidence and throw people's lives sideways. At what point in your career did you have that accident and how, how did it impact um, your 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 mental health. Well, I I was a volunteer teacher in Nigeria, and we after university, and we were all encouraged to buy small motorbikes so that we could get to shops in nearby towns. Nobody would do that now; it was mad. And I fell off my motorbike and broke my knee very badly and was flown home and was operated on in full-length plaster for a year. So one of the effects of that was that all my friends by the age of 24 were starting out in their careers and I yeah. was sitting there in full-length plaster thinking, will I ever start my career? And by the time I did start applying to journalism schemes, I discovered they nearly all closed by the age of 23, because at 24 you were called an adult entrant and you had to be paid more, so nobody oh, wanted wow. to employ you, because too old at 24. Wow, that's shocking. And I had great difficulty getting a job, and then when I did get the job, I... I told them I could now walk properly, but actually I couldn't. Luckily, the newsroom was on the ground floor and I, my leg didn't bend enough to walk up and down stairs properly. And you didn't tell them this? No, because I knew, I, I, I knew if I said I had some form of disability, I wouldn't get the job. And Gosh. I think of that now and... I still know quite a few people who hide their disabilities, but 
or their past illnesses. I know women who say you must never tell anybody that I've had breast cancer because if you do, I won't get any work. I've gone, that can't be true. But they say, because, as you've just said, the work is freelance, if people mm. know that I've had breast cancer, they might think, oh, she might not be able to cope. I have two debilitating um, illnesses that fortunately you get temporarily, uh, polymyalgia rheumatica and giant cell arteritis. And I know leading people who never tell anybody they have these diseases because they are worried they won't get work. I know an actor who has it and he doesn't tell anybody because he's worried he won't get theatrical work because people think, oh, he's got these two horrible autoimmune diseases. Let's just employ somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I I would like to think and, and being on the coalface of things and hopefully very much positively influencing the way companies and people are hiring now that we have certainly see the, seen the tide turn on that. And obviously we can't get inside people's heads and unconscious biases or even deliberate biases and go, you have to, you know, choose that person over that person. But we absolutely see difference disability background as you have quite rightly said lived experience that can only enrich a team's creativity that can only bring certain viewpoints and should never be seen as a negative only a how can we help you be your best at work and well, we are seeing that more and more and look at how i've just said to you that my experiences then have influenced the programs that I've made. Yep. And I can think of a very good example. I really suffered in the menopause. It was awful. I woke up every hour or two. I mean, I was constantly exhausted. And as a result of that, I commissioned a film about the menopause, which was um, Davina McCall went on to present. And I would never have done that if I myself had not suffered from the menopause. So if the only people you have working in TV are people who don't have anything wrong with them, well, lucky them. Yeah. But I would say it will limit their ideas for TV programmes. And when um, I commissioned that, a lovely young man that I work with said, oh, nobody will watch it. And uh, I said, really? I think they will. And he said, well, only old women will watch it. And I said, well, luckily, there are lots of old women. But I don't think you're right. Because actually, the menopause can come on in your early 40s. And all women are going to have the menopause one day, probably, or nearly all. And they are—they have employers, they have sons, they have male partners, they have male friends. And actually, the program rated so well that they almost immediately commissioned a second one. 
you've done such a great thing with your menopause campaigning and like like you say it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't gone through it yourself I mean I know loads of people are much more open about talking about what is their policy at work it's not so ick anymore um I just think it is vital you know me and my friends talk about it Davina McCall was so fantastic on it and you know the internal policies at Channel 4 now are just excellent for people going through the menopause so all of that massively backs up what you're saying and and actually one of my favorite things that you said in your mctaggart was when you change who is making tv you change tv and that's what we're saying yeah i am i'm 100 percent sure that that's true and it's not just true in television you you take into each new workplace your knowledge and experience but you made a very good point at the beginning, actually, of our chat, that we think about younger women, but we don't think enough in this country about women in the middle of their careers. Yeah. And we have maternity policies, but it's only very recently, partly as a result of that Davina McCall programme, that companies have a menopause policy and we don't think enough about why women's careers get stuck in the middle and I think women in the middle of their careers who could rise to the very top are the group that we should look at. For example, People say, isn't it marvellous, there are far more women on boards. But if you look at that, actually, they're the non-executive directors. In the FTSE 100, there are only three companies that have women CEOs. I mean, that that is incredible. That is mind-blowing. So how do we get women to the very top and... I think some of that is about helping with the menopause. Some of it is about helping them through some critical years, which is when you have maybe got the menopause, you've got teenage children going through the ludicrous and horrific exam system. Yes. And your parents are getting older and might need constant visiting and they might be in a home and you have to visit them. And those three things happen to me all at once. And if I probably, if I hadn't been a single parent and if I hadn't loved my job so much as well, I might well have given up. And I know a lot of women who gave up. And of the women I started out with, by the age of, say, 65, I was the only one still working in a substantive job. Wow. It's such a good point, Dorothy, because I think quite a lot of people, and maybe this is sort of because it was my peer group more recently, but, but worry about the women who are giving up um, work or finding it difficult to come back from maternity leave, for example. Not all women have kids, um, of course, but there is a significant chunk of, of women who in their 30s, 
late 30s, have kids and then struggle to get back in because it's freelance, because childcare is expensive, all of it, losing confidence, all of those things. But actually thinking ahead to those women once they have found their way in where they're, you know, there, there is support and usually, hopefully, most of the time we get them back somehow, that section of your career when you don't want to be giving up because are you ever going to come back from it when you're you know late 50s no. early 60s as you say that is that's is a big deal and, and and a whole new load of stresses involving family that you that nobody talks about and i think for men too we need to devise much cleverer ideas about having flexible working at various points in your career and we need to stop this idea that if you work if you stop work for a bit you're hopeless or if you work part-time you have to go down yeah that is um, so you had a really good job and now you have a less good job but there's some very interesting research that somebody has just told me about among American hospital doctors, women. Even if they don't have children, their careers get stuck. So I think we need to do more research about this group, women who didn't have children, whose careers get stuck. Yeah. I mean, mm. Athene Donald, Dame Athene Donald, who's just written a fantastic book, um, not just for boys, why we need more women scientists. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. says uh, the key to her being stupendously successful is that her husband, a mathematician, took on the role of looking after the children. But I don't think we should be saying one person that had needs to take over that job yeah and it it was wonderful he saw she was brilliant and felt that was the right thing to do but we shouldn't have to choose um no i don't believe in the notion of having it all i believe in the notion of having what we have the talents to achieve and deserve without killing ourselves just around the corner. The standard said I could appear on their list of the 100 mo- or 200 most influential people in London if I said how old I was. But I couldn't be in the list if I didn't say how old I was. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. This is The Imposter Club, the podcast bringing a sense of solidarity to creative types. Now, on with the good stuff. I love that. 
I'm going to just can what you just said and repeat it over and over. You're, yeah, you're bang on. I mean, I always used to talk to my um, peers and friends going through similar early 30s, working in TV, having kids. Ah, how do we make this all work? And I remember us all saying it's almost like someone, if you're in a, a relationship with someone and you both have careers, there has to kind of be an A career and a B career if you're going to have a family and make it work. Yeah. How did you manage it? Because when you became a parent, you were were you already head of news and current affairs at Channel 4? Yeah, so I was, no, I was the editor of a programme on ITV at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I was 45, so I had earned enough money to be able to have a live-in nanny. So I had my baby at the you know, and I say to people, do not assume you can do what I did. I managed to have a baby when I was nearly 45 with my own egg. That will not <laughs> happen to most people. As a single parent, we should say, you As weren't a, in yeah, a relationship. I went, yeah, I went, I, it was, I had a donor child. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I could afford to have a live-in nanny, but I... And I did that because otherwise there's, the stress would have broken me. And at that point, because she's 26 now, I never felt that I could say, I'm afraid I can't do that meeting because of childcare problems, or I'm afraid my daughter's ill and I can't come in today. I mean, obviously, sometimes I did have to say that. But I was really frightened of the effect on my career. I was freelance. I was the editor of a programme. So if I had taken a year off, number one, I didn't have maternity pay. But number two, I would not have been the editor of a programme by the time I came back. So I took five and a half weeks off. And... That was horrific. And maybe if I'd known how horrific it was going to be, I would never have done it because you've still got all those hormones in your body as well. And my longing for my baby would become absolutely physically overwhelming. I tried expressing milk in the toilets and after about two and a half weeks I just gave up it was so depressing and disgusting um, yeah it was really really hard and one thing I feel again the government says it's concerned about people about the birth rate falling is we should not have a system where maternity pay is so totally allied to the fact that you have a staff job. We should have better maternity pay for everybody. Um, well, I'm interested actually in what you've just said and I'm thinking back to what you said earlier too and we'll, we'll finish up quite soon. But there are bits of Dorothy there that you're giving us and you've always been super honest and, and direct as I alluded to in the intro. But there are things that you've said which make me think, gosh, actually you weren't, like fearless and bold at those moments you know like when you were 
frightened on the effect that being a mum would have on your career so you kind of you were lucky enough to afford the nanny but you felt like you couldn't do it any other way because you had to say yes to every meeting you possibly could is that something now looking back that you feel you you wish you'd done differently or you wish you hadn't felt like that and handled it differently well I don't think I was wrong (laughs) I mean I don't think I would have got the job if I said I couldn't walk I think it would have affected my career prospects if I had constantly taken time off. I think uh, I wouldn't have had a job if I had taken months off to have a baby. And I don't know what I would have lived on anyway. Um, And I talk about all these things now, but that's easier because I'm successful. And of course, the thing that menopause relates to, but which is a huge thing, is ageism. So for a long time in TV, I did not say how old I was. And at one point, when I was in my 50s, we were discussing employing someone. And one of my bosses said, oh, we can't employ her. She's too old. She's 46. And I thought, oh, my God. If he knew my age, so, uh, and eventually I decided to come out as old and the standard said <laughs> I could appear on their list of, I think it was the 100 mo- or 200 most influential people in London, if I said how old I was. But I had to, I couldn't be in the list if I didn't say how old I was. What did you um, do? I I I actually went and consulted Peter O'Born, the journalist who I was working with on the time okay. at the time. And I said, Peter, I'm thinking of coming out as old. And he thought for a minute and he said, I like it. So I appeared in this list of the most influential people in London. And I draw, drew it to the attention of my two male bosses. And I said, yeah. oh, look, here is the list of the most influential people in London. Let's see if you're on it, I said to the first one. So I looked up his name and I said, oh, sorry, you're not on it. And then I <laughs> said to the one, his deputy, Let's see if you're on it. Oh, no, you're not on it. And then I said, and tell you what, just for a joke, let's see if I'm on it. Oh, look, I am. And I pointed to it and they were really annoyed. Well, no, the deputy thought it was really funny, but I could see that his boss did not think it was so funny because he wanted to be on it. But I made them look at it, and there was my age, and that's and that's how I came out. And now, oh, did they say anything? No, because they were so appalled and amazed that I was influential and they weren't. You uh, positioned that really well, rather than, rather than let them see it somewhere and look at the age first. That was a very good sell. Yeah, and now. You know, I got the job as president of Murray Edwards when I was 69, which may I say I could only do because I'm on HRT. Otherwise, 
I mean, if you wake up every hour, you cannot be a president. Um, and and now I'm 71. I'm really proud. And at Cambridge, I say to people, because they all think they're clever, blah blah they'll go. And I say, speaking with the wisdom of age. Perfect. <laughs> when do I get to say that? I don't feel like I've got the justification of of something like that. That's cool. Just say it. Um, I wanted to wrap up with um, asking you, do you, do you have anything that you wish, knowing what you know now and the, with the wisdom of age, that you could have said to 24-year-old Dorothy when you were going through a real tough patch getting your career started? I would say... You can, you should be applying for much better jobs because you deserve to get them because you are talented, hardworking and honest. And not a lot of people are those three things. Yes. So more self-belief, although you had a good start with your, you know, your father and your teachers and, you know, all of that, but I don't think anything can really prepare you for how Brutal well, it I, is. And I think also now the head of news at BBC, Channel 4 and ITV and ITN, they're all women. And and I think that's a big difference now that you can look and see, oh, I you know, I could do that. Well, you could say to yourself, you could look at Liz Truss and say, I could be Liz Truss, but don't do that. <laughs> Definitely don't do that. And do you, do you have any other pearls of wisdom for people who are kind of struggling with their own self-doubt in their career? Yes, there's a, there's a technique that parents are encouraged to use with very small children when they're not feeling great. And it actually works really well for adults. And I do this. So every morning when you wake up, Think of three good things you are going to do that day. And it doesn't need to be something amazing. It might be, I'm going to pick some flowers. I'm going to have a lovely boiled egg. I'm going to see my friend. But if you say those thing, three things out loud, honestly, it makes you feel better before you even get out of bed. And then at night, before you go to sleep, think of three really nice things that you did that day. Again, they don't need to be amazing. And say them out loud to yourself. And you'll be amazed that that simple technique just really makes you feel better about yourself and your life. I love that. Dorothy, thank you so much. I just... I could talk to you all day, but you've got much more important things to be doing at Cambridge and also still doing kind of consultancy, aren't you, for secret Channel 4 things? I'm still an executive producer of television programmes, some of which yeah. are secret. So, okay. oh, 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 look, I hope... Uh, no, the really important thing I'm going to do is have lunch with my friend. And that's Love that. very important. Always make time to have lunch with your friends. Yes, and people need to hear that. Go and have lunch with a friend. 
even if it's a cheese sandwich at their house and a good old cup of tea. It's much better than living in your head worrying about stuff all day. So absolutely, we advocate sharing and um, talking to people. So thank you, Dorothy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Imposter Club, brought to you by Talented People. I'm Kimberly Godwell, and it has been lovely to hang out with you while you commute slash gym slash dog walk or whatever you're doing. If this has struck a chord, please go ahead and share it with your friends in that closed WhatsApp group I'm not in or on your social networks. Our aim is to reach as many fellow imposters as we can to share love and learnings and create a sense of belonging. And if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode drop. Thank you to Talented People, produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, exec producer, Rosie Turner, editor, Ben Mullins. See you later. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.